You are listening to Keystone's Stock Talk Podcast, Episode 1. Today we're going to talk about why investors should continue to get used to the low interest rate environment, why dividend growth stocks are a great option in this type of market. I'm going to get my rant on over the overcomplication in the financial industry. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, Aaron answers a client question on a tiny microcap stock. And in our Stars and Dogs segment, we review both Bombardier and Ebix, the latter being a strong winner from our U.S. growth stock coverage over the past year. So let's get started. Ryan Irvin here. Welcome to our Stock Talk podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook. Now let's dig into the show. Welcome to Keystone's inaugural Stock Talk podcast. We are here to talk stock, the world of business and finance, and perhaps provide a sliver of entertainment. Each week we'll tackle some top stories in the financial world, but more importantly, look at some stories and stocks that you may not hear about from mass media, but should definitely pay attention to. We will also answer questions from an analyst perspective on your stock, so feel free to send them in. First off, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Keystone's senior analyst, father of one and a man I was recently informed secretly moonlights as a baritone in a local barbershop quartet known as the B-Shorps, Mr. Aaron Dunn. Welcome. Yes, thank you, Ryan. Thank you for that lovely introduction. In all seriousness, like you, I'm, I'm really looking forward to helping our li- listeners make some money in the markets. But more importantly than that, I'm looking forward to helping them avoid losses in the markets. As the saying goes, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. But I think that as long as it's the right c- kind of knowledge, then a little bit of it can go a long way. And that's what we're here to do, to provide people with the right information that demystifies the markets and gets the markets working for you. I agree. And you're welcome for the intro. Now... While we focus fundamentally on the micro-environment surrounding these stocks we uncover on behalf of our clients, it behooves us not to peek our heads up once in a while, look around, and look a little more macro. With the Fed fund rate decisions driving short-term capital flows in and out of markets, we thought taking a quick look at the rate environment and into what type of stocks uh, capital may be continue to flow Uh, into would be instructive for portfolios generally. Now, when the U.S. Federal Reserve raised interest rates a measly quarter of a point last December, some investors thought it was about time. After all, pundits had long been warning of a rising rate environment ahead. But many investors, myself included, were skeptical that the U.S. economy was ready for liftoff. Instead, we saw a failure to launch. Now, investors are now acting like another rate hike in 2016 is all but impossible. After an ugly May jobs report, an expected June rate hike was quickly tabled. Now, while the writing continues to be on the wall for a continued extended period of low rates, investors have still gotten, really not gotten this memo. So get used to low rates and continued low rates. 
Now, to be sure, a vast majority of investors are hopeful that the recovery will stick. I mean, we'd like to see that, but it's natural to believe the U.S. economy is stronger and more prepared for tighter monetary policy than what is reality. But it's not, but like it or not, the U.S. continued to suffer the overhang from an unusually deep and long-lasting recession, a so-called secular stagnation period where output and employment measures remain weak in the long term despite aggressive monetary policies, policies like very low interest rates and quantitative easing. Now, the fact that the U.S. has not seen inflation-adjusted GDP growth above 3% for over a decade and still may not see growth rate that robust for several more years is a bitter pill, but it's the reality. We also live in a new technological and globalized era where the economic models of, say, 2016 today tend to conserve much more capital than in ages past when there was more demand for big investments in labor and bricks and mortar facilities. The Amazons and Ubers of the world help us access goods and services more quickly and at a lower cost, but there isn't the same level of capital investment as there was under the old model of big box stores and so Yellow Cab, for example, buying a fleet of Ford Tauruses. Now, the sad, sad reality is that until and unless the U.S. posts employment metrics that are con consistently strong or inflation rises significantly and stays elevated, there simply isn't a case for hiking rates this month, this year, or possibly even next year. So what does this mean to your portfolio? And that's what we're here today to discuss. Now, if you're seeking yield bonds, T-bills, GICs, etc. will continue to leave you wanting. Now, one answer that we have, and we're a big proponent of, is continuing to invest in dividend growth stocks, or those stocks that consistently grow their dividends and the underlying business over time. Now, we have a graph on our website, if you go to our Market Buzz blog, that illustrates this, but over the last 30 years, the time horizon, dividend stocks on the S&P 500 generated a total return of 10.19% per year compared to 4.39 generated from non-dividend stocks, a nearly 6% difference, which is very significant year after year over a 30-year period. Now, the true outperformers were dividend growers and those that initiate dividends and, and dividend initiators and dividend growers, those that grew their dividends over time with consistent and growing cash flow. While no dividend or stock is 100% guaranteed, the market always provides some select opportunities to buy well-capitalized companies with solid dividend yields and the potential to grow them long-term. Now, these are the stocks that we believe you want to own over time. Aaron, you got comments? I, I, I was just thinking that, that what you said just makes absolute sense to me. And if you look at the numbers, there is little to no intelligent argument that can be made against making dividend stocks an important part of your portfolio or even the core of your portfolio. You know, some people would argue at certain points in the market cycle, dividend stocks are too expensive to buy. I can understand that, that argument, but right now we're, we're not in that situation, especially when you compare the valuations of dividend stocks to, to non-dividend pairs. Others would argue that dividend stocks are too conservative and don't offer the share price appreciation that investors are looking for in the stock market. That is simply untrue. Dividend stocks can be large, mature companies with little growth, but they can also be small cap companies with amazing growth. 
uh, the dividend stocks that we love are the ones that are growing their earnings and growing their cash flow on a per share basis and raising the dividend every year. And those are the companies that generally generate the best share price appreciation for their shareholders. Now, you talked about the outperformance of dividend stocks over over a long period. and, yes. and that's that that that's something that's incredibly important for people to understand. But there's several studies online that people can access, reputable studies um, that go back over multi-decade periods, back to 1927 in some cases, and they they determine that 75 to 90 percent of the total return in the stock market in both Canada and the United States are actually from from dividends. So you're you're not just talking about about a small portion of total investment return coming from dividend, you're talking about the majority of it coming from dividends um, when spread across the overall market. They're generally less risky than non-dividend stocks, and they, they provide a higher, higher return. So our general advice is to build a portfolio around a core of high-quality dividend growth stocks and then augment that return with some higher growth, higher risk names. Yeah, and I think you raised a great point there when you said um, that dividend stocks are not necessarily the old stodgy uh, mature businesses that many associate with dividend growers. I mean, even in our uh, small cap, high growth stock portfolio, Canadian focused portfolio, uh, there's about 15 stocks in there. Eight of them pay dividends. And these are high growth companies that are producing great cash flow, but happen to also pay dividends to reward their shareholders over time. And again, we're looking for good dividends, but also capital appreciation from those companies. So definitely not a mature business, just companies that are cognizant that returning capital to shareholders over time is a good thing. And uh, we, we love to invest in companies like this. So the next thing we're going to get into is uh, a bit of a rant on my part. Um, it's one of my biggest pet peeves uh, on the market and how the broader financial industry pushes overly complicated investment strategies on individual investors. I believe it's utter nonsense that your average investor should even complement or contemplate trading derivatives. Now, for those unfamiliar with what derivatives are, and you're not alone, they are essentially financial instruments such as a futures contract, an option, or a warrant whose value is derived and is dependent upon the value of an underlying asset. Now, I mean no disrespect by this, but the average investor has trouble defining what they, uh, the average investor has trouble defining what they are, um, what they bought when they purchase a stock in, the, in a public company. And this is a relatively simple concept. Hell, very, many simple, stunned professional traders can hardly give you the simple answer to that question. But give your average Joe Q public an investment that is once or twice removed from an underlying asset and you're asking for confusion and loss. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for the average investor, these products are not investing, they are speculating, and there's a big difference in risk profile between the two. But the strategy of trading derivatives is now casually slipped into the conversation for average investor, as if it is as simple as buying a gun in America. Now, it is not. Even the pros have a hard time consistently making money trading these potentially dangerous vehicles. I challenge you to go out and Google the 1995 collapse of London-based Barings Bank, which was the result of unauthorized derivatives trading by the bank's then well-thought-of head of derivatives trader. If you doubt me, how dangerous these instruments can be in the wrong hands. Now, one of my very favorite examples of how casually the financial industry tries to sell you on complicated strategies 
is a commercial that has run nationally on the financial networks for years. Now, protect the innocent, the firm running the ad shall remain nameless. The point of the commercial is that the broker's service is so simple and easy to profit from that with just a click of a mouse, you can be trading exotic derivatives. What really gets me is about halfway through this commercial, a well-dressed client exclaims, and listen to this closely, when I can't sleep at night, I trade S&P futures. Now, is it just me, or does that sound a bit too casual for anybody? Like, when I can't sleep at night, I walk into the kitchen, trip over the dog, grab a glass of milk, perhaps read a little, and go back to bed. I'm certainly not making investment decisions at 2 a.m. in a stupor just because I can. But that is the way it is marketed to you. And it's frankly disgusting, overcomplicated, and completely unnecessary. Now our advice here, the average investor who's looking for an edge that they can actually understand is better off educating themselves on buying good businesses, not stock symbols, uh, and rather than just trading those symbols. Now simple, simplify your investing, stop overcomplicating your investment strategies. Any take on that, Aaron? This is what I've been repeating to investors who ask me what is the simplest, most efficient way possible to invest, and that's that's to use a an exchange traded fund or an ETF. So I'm glad that you've been listening to my advice, Ryan. Of course, uh, th these ETFs they can be bought and sold easily. Uh, they can give you exposure to a wide range of different markets, including Canada, the U.S., international markets, uh, dividend aristocrats. Most importantly, though, they're cheap from a, free, from a fee standpoint. Active mutual fund money managers will typically charge you anywhere from 1.5 to 2% of your assets under management every year, whether they make money for you or not, whereas an indexed ETF generally will charge between 0.2% to 0.5%. Just keep in mind that like everything else, ETFs come in all shapes and sizes, all levels of, of quality and complexity. And um, what we're talking about here are indexed ETFs. They're also referred to as plain vanilla ETFs. But there are other types of, of ETFs that are more complicated, um, such as uh, bulls, bear ETFs, commodities, um, anything consisting of, of options and futures. Stay away from these complicated investments. Just buy a simple plain vanilla ETF that tracks the market or the markets that you want. Get it from a reputable provider and look to hold it for many years. And that's, that's, that, that is the, the simplest and most efficient way to invest if you're not concerned with outperforming the market. If you just want to emulate a market return, that's essentially the way to do it. You, you buy this product and, and you just tuck it away for several years and you sleep easy at night, hopefully. Yeah, that's your classic portfolio on a shoestring budget. And it, you know, it's, you're going to mirror the markets over time and you're gonna, you know, the returns that you're going to produce are probably going to best many uh, many of the bank products that you're going to get out there and, and many of the overcomplicated products that are trading you in and out of the market. Definitely simplify. You'll understand what you're doing. Uh, or if you want to get you know, a little bit more complicated, you can invest in individual companies that you understand and potentially, of course, use a service like ours. Now, we're going to look at uh, your stock. Our uh, listeners uh, have sent in an individual company that they'd like our take on it. So I'm going to let Aaron go into uh, a company that was sent in our mailbag. Uh, this is your stock, our take. Excellent. So the company that I'm going to talk about is Relique Health. 
uh, formerly known as Moseda, which is formerly known as Golden Virtue Resources. Looking at the company's website in terms of what they do and where they believe their opportunity is, they believe that mobile technology in combination with cloud computing and wearable devices has reached a tipping point where critical security can be readily achieved and which ultimately creates a huge opportunity for the entire market segment to increase their operational efficiency and efficacy. I can't say necessarily that I understand that just from reading that from their website. It's a lot of buzzwords, but when, when we look deeper into what the company does from what we understand, uh, they develop a secure mobile platform that connects medical equipment so that, as an example, a doctor could have 20 patients using home-based testing equipment and can monitor um, that, that equipment from his desk rather than having to visit each patient or have them come to the office and, and self, self-report. So that, that sounds interesting. That sounds like it has potential to me. But the first thing that we want to look at is, is does this company have any sales? And when you look at the last quarter, we see uh, fairly small sales. They are, they are positive, positive revenues. So that is, a po- that is, that is positive. Uh, 185000 in revenues. So basically just getting into revenues, just, uh, just at the very early stage. This is, up, this is up from zero at the same time last year. And, but in the quarter, the company also lost just almost about $400,000. So they, they are not profitable yet at this time. $517,000 appears to be all that the company has secured in sales over the last 12 months. So for us, this is a company that is, that is just way too early stage. This is really where we separate the, world, the worlds of investing from pure speculation. With limited sales, no profitability, limited assets, and a, a clear need for additional growth capital, the company is impossible to value at this point. Um, there's just basically no way that we could predict what the future cash flows are going to be or, or when they're going to come. At this stage, we would, we would essentially consider Relique Health to be a gamble on the management and the technology that they've developed to date. The company does have some sales, like I said, so that's better than nothing. But to quote Kevin O'Leary, they remain a, co- a tiny cockroach in their space. With only about 600000 in cash in the bank and the company losing over half that amount in the last quarter alone, they're going to likely need to go back to the market. They're going to need to raise capital by selling shares, and that's going to dilute existing shareholders. Likely, they will, they will have to do this multiple times before they enter into profitability. So while the technology may have a potential, the potential doesn't pay the bills. And our take on this stock is that it's uninvestable at this time. Yeah, of course, I agree with that assessment. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's a case where it's very hard to evaluate the business. Uh, there's certainly worse situations out there. At least there is some revenue coming in and some growth uh, over this time last year. But, you know, we're looking for profitability. And the thing is, we can find so many companies with a ton of cash in the bank um, and and trading it to, you know, eight to 12 times earnings uh, that are growing those earnings over time and uh, have that established business and trade at market caps, which are, you know, in the same range as this. Uh, we just wouldn't want to speculate on a company like this. It's too speculative for our blood. We think we can have similar upside with less downside and other micro caps that are actually profitable. So again, uh, it's not a company we'd be investing in at this stage. I'm, I'm just going to add another point here as well, because as an analyst, I obviously get approached um, by companies quite a lot, um, pitching their, their business. And sometimes sometimes there, there's some interesting opportunities that come out of that. But I, I, hear, I hear a lot from companies that are pre-revenue, pre-profitability. And 
one one that stood out in my mind it was it was probably about eight years ago now was uh, I can't remember the name of the company but the investor relations person came to me and, and and they had a laser it was apparently this revolutionary laser and they they were getting all this interest in the market and it was it was just going to change whatever industry it operated in and you know it, it was just a matter of time before this exploded and I asked him straight away is are, are you generating any revenue are you generating a profit and he said not yet but th that this was going to happen so my response to him was that well when it happened is to come back to me and, and, and tell me and then I would look at the company and I'm not surprised that I never heard back from him and I, I don't think that it ever happened and and the way that I look at a situation like that is sometimes I'll hear about a technology that that does really sound appealing and, and it sounds like it has a lot of p potential but the fact of the matter is when we look at this this laser company I'm not an expert in lasers I, I can't really analyze that technology specifically I don't have an in-depth understanding of that specific industry so I, I really have no way of saying for sure whether or not it, it is legitimate technology and whether or not there really is a need for it in the industry or if there's something else that's being developed that's just as good or better. But what revenue tells me, growing revenue, significant and growing revenue, is that that technology, whatever it is, has gained market acceptance because people in the industry are actually buying it. They're actually pulling money out of their pocket, out of their budget, and they're actually buying it. And, and growth in revenues means that more people are buying it. The ability to actually take that revenue and generate a profit shows me that management is prudent enough to, to, to control the costs and to, that, that they have an opportunity where the margins are high enough and the cost can be controlled to a point that you can actually deliver something to shareholders. Because we've also seen stories many times in the past where you do have revenues and a lot of revenue growth, but none of that ever gets down to the bottom line. And ultimately, as a shareholder, it's it's the earnings that you're buying. It's it's not the technology. It's it's the cash flow that that technology can generate. Yeah, and like to come full circle, um, one of the things that we're trying to do is limit the downside and help you not lose money in the market. Um, when you do have sales, when you do have cash flow and earnings, even then it's tough enough to make a buck in the market and to continue to find the right companies but at least you have something to fall back on. Um, when you have businesses which don't have those or are still continuing to lose money, um, there is more of a, a higher potential of catastrophic loss in a company. So, it, And the thing is the upside in those companies is not uh, commensurate with the risk that you are uh, taking in those. And then you can take a lower risk and have the same or higher upside in a company that is just already cranking out cash flow and growing that. So those are the companies we like to invest in rather than you know, an early stage company that has a great technology or a hope and a pear or a moose pasture somewhere in Saskatoon that they think they're gonna find the next great gold mine in. No need to take that risk to, um, to have the payoff that you're looking for in say a small cap or growth stock. Uh, we limit the risk by having these companies already have good solid cash flow and earnings and, and solid balance sheets. So now we're going to move on to our last segment. It's one and one. It's one stock you heard about this week that you should ignore and another that you did not hear about likely, but you should pay attention to. So essentially we're flipping conventional or mass financial media on its ear, pointing out overreported stocks or stories that offer little value to you as an investor and highlighting underreported stocks and financial stories that can actually have a meaningful impact on your portfolio. So first off this week we visit 
the 2016 success story, and I'm making air quotes when I say success story, Bombardier. Now, the company has actually seen its share prices, shares rise around 60% since the start of this year. The embattled but always newsworthy manufacturer of planes, trains, and no automobiles signed another deal or a deal earlier this year with Delta Airlines for the company's much maligned C-Series plane. Now, this is the same series which is more than two years behind schedule, more than two billion US over budget, and has put Bombardier in such difficulty that the Quebec government has paid $1 billion for an equity stake in the program. And the Montreal-based transportation giant is also seeking federal financial help again. Please, Mr. Trudeau, your dad was so kind to us, our hands are out again to you. Now, as a taxpayer, perhaps this uh, will be a story if Justin opens the business slush fund. I believe strongly in no handouts to businesses that cannot keep their houses afloat, their own houses afloat. Now, as an investor who cares, as an investor, I would say, who cares? Bombardier does not even pass the smell test because it continually needs cash. Bombardier has always had tons of coverage from Bay Street. Now, every big bank and most financial institutions have covered it and recommended it for years, despite the awful performance of this stock. The stock has been an absolute tire fire from $26 15 years ago to close recently at $2. Now, Bombardier was in news again this week as Metrolinx, the Ontario agency in charge of transportation in and around Toronto, filed a notice of default against Bombardier for a delayed delivery of a fleet of light rail vehicles. The notice gave a short-term deadline from Bombardier to provide an updated schedule of delivery for the vehicles, none of which have yet to be delivered. The $770 million contract signed in 2010 called for Bombardier to deliver 183 vehicles between 2013 and 2020. Metrolinx is still awaiting an update on the progress. Just one more example of Bombardier's ability to drive right through deadlines. Now, contract win or not with Delta, history has taught us that this company will find some way to mismanage its way to long-term losses. It's our opinion to stay away from this stock. There's too many good companies out there that we can find that continually generate cash, do not go to the market and ask for more shares or go to the government and ask for bailouts. Just stay away from Bombardier. It's not investable long-term for us. And I get to talk about the winner. Lucky you. So this is like Ryan said, because I am the winner. <laughs> mm. This is, like Ryan said, uh, this is the company that you probably did not hear about in the I media. I pulled the short straw, really, let's be honest. <laughs> so the company that I'm going to talk about is Ebix Inc. It, it, it trades in the U.S. on the NASDAQ exchange. The symbol is E-B-I-X. And this is actually a company that Keystone covers in our U.S. growth stock research. So we recommended this company about a year ago at $30, and today it trades at just over $52. So that's a return of about 70% over a period where the S&P 500 is up around 2%. What the company does is they build and sell software mostly for the, the insurance and financial industries. So they essentially provide the digital infrastructure that powers the back end of these companies and allows them to transfer data and perform transactions efficiently. 
the business model specifically is appealing to us because rather than just building a product and selling it once, they build their product once and they generate licensing fees that keep getting paid for many years in the future. About 80%, they report about 80% of their revenues are recurring in nature, and that's, that's, that's something we like to see because it indicates good stability in the, in the financial performance. As I say, the, the proof is in the numbers. When we recommended this company a year ago, they had 10 straight years of earnings growth. Uh, eight, out of, uh, eight out of 10 years of revenue growth, they remained profitable and grew during the 2008 crash and recession. And they were trading at about 15 times earnings a year ago when we recommended them, which in the U.S. market, even in the Canadian market, but particularly in the U.S. market, reflected very solid value where similar com- companies with those characteristics were trading in the 25 to 35 times earnings range or even higher. They've continued on the growth path since our recommendation and reported 30% earnings per share growth in their last quarter, Q1. The next quarter, Q2, is going to be out in a couple of weeks in early August. It's embedded value in the share price when we recommended it and the strong financial performance since that drove the 70% increase in the shares over the last year. So this is the kind of stock that we like to buy, the kind of company that's making money and making more money as time goes on, and that can be purchased at a reasonable price relative to its underlying earnings and cash flow. Looking at EBIX today, the outlook does continue to be strong. Right now, they're trading about 22 times earnings. It's not really a value situation. The, the earnings, price-to-earnings multiple is not exactly cheap. But when you look at it relative to other companies in the markets that share those characteristics, we still think that the valuation is reasonable and, and it still continues to be uh, a reasonable buy. Nothing that I would hurry out, uh, run out to buy quickly at this price, but certainly um, for a small position and to look for opportunities to build on that, on that position over time. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent example of a company that we've been very successful in uh, over the past year and, uh, you know, continue to hold because of the growth uh, we believe in long term. Um, and I think that about does it for this week. Anything to add at the end? I mean, if you've got any questions, also uh, go to contact us on www.keystocks.com. Send us an email on uh, any stocks that you want us to take a look at in the Canadian and U.S. markets dividend growers or just small cap Canadian stocks. Um, We'd be happy to answer your questions next week. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, um, and uh, tweet us a question on there. Thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you next week.